passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to another edition of Cruel Summer, our look at each and every G1 Climax Tournament Finals from the year 1991 to the year 2018. And today is episode 10, uh, covering the year 2000. We're going to look at a match between Manabu Nakanishi and Kensuke Sasaki. And joining me today, I'm very, very excited. He, My guest today is the co-host of the Grapple Spotlight podcast, one of the most entertaining, one of the most comprehensive, and one of the funniest podcast I listen to each and every week. Uh, his name is JP. JP, hello, how are you? I'm very good, WH, how are you? I'm fine. It's a little. It's getting a little warm in my apartment because I don't turn on the AC when I record mm. because I don't want to carry, I want to limit all the ambient noise, but it, it's getting to be summer here, but it's good. It's a nice, lovely day. I'm going to go for a walk after we record this. I have, I have a package coming from probably some wrestling company, I ordered something from, I don't know which one, so I can't say what it is, but it's good. That sound, sounds exciting. Sounds like an exciting Saturday. Nice, relaxing Saturday as well. That's, yeah, it's it's a little bit behind here. It's pitch black outside, but it is also actually quite warm in the UK, sort of unseasonably so. It doesn't seem quite right, because normally summers in Britain are terrible. Yeah, so we're going to plug a lot of stuff at the end of the show, but mm-hmm. like, let, let's talk about... Uh, your show that you do regularly with uh, yep. uh, Benno and Mr. Joe Lemon. Uh, it's called yes. The Grapple Spotlight. Tell us a little bit about that show. Oh, okay. Um, so it's The Grapple Spotlight. It's the official um, podcast for The Grapple app, which um, hopefully all of the listeners will have had a chance to uh, to download, where you can put basically your match ratings on. And you can go, there's lots of promotions on there. There's always more being added on all the time. Um, but yeah, on the show, uh, there's the three of us. Um, Generally, nominally, it's a wrestling show, and we try and cover stuff from sort of around the world, mainly things that we particularly just find interesting, rather than, say, WWE pay-per-views, which we generally don't. Um, But we always get sidetracked and talk about the biggest load of nonsense, and it goes down some very weird pathways. Um, Yeah, it it did start off as a British podcast, but it's kind of broadened out there. Benno somehow tries to keep the whole ship together, 
And there's normally a rant from Joe at some stage, um, particularly the ones about Jay White. They're always good fun. Oh, yes. I, I tune in for those, obviously. People <laughs> who know, who listen to the other show I do with John Pollock, uh, Post Perez, know I, of my uh, le- less than favorable views of not Jay White. I like Jay White as a, as a wrestler. It's just Jay White Switchblade character. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of. But I, I'm pretty sure yes. people are on episode 10 of this and probably think, oh, he's talking about fucking Switchblade again. So let's not talk about Switchblade. <laughs> Uh, on this episode too much um also so let's get a brief history mm-hmm. about about jp like uh yes. your uh, fandom the history of your fandom and how you got involved with i guess podcasting okay so i mean a sort of long-term fan in terms of what got me into it uh, i suppose world of Sp- as in the uk there's kind of tradition if you were a kid in the 80s that world of sport is kind of your gateway in but then in the late 80s you had wcw um on saturday afternoons and that was really the thing that kind of got me into sort of being more aware of the world of wrestling and that kind of led to then reading a lot of the after mags and reading the top 10 lists and seeing about the kind of global world of wrestling and hearing about wrestling in mexico and in japan and i suppose between that and it was predominantly wwf all over sky but then we had um, magazines like Power Slam, and, and that kind of was very much like an insider magazine being available in every news agents in, in the country, which seems mad now. It's kind of like having a mini wrestling observer for sale where you'd buy your newspapers. It, it, it seems a bit crazy. Um, and then at that point, like my kind of interest was really peaked, got into tape trading, um, found myself buying stuff from all around the world. As a younger man, I... I, I bought a lot of death i think the first one i bought was iwa king of the death matches like most teenagers in the mid 90s and so since then i've i've just kind of like fallen in love with watching everything from around the world um particularly sort of independent wrestling and uh and japanese wrestling as as being the two that i've i've kind of found myself really latched onto. and then we decided um we were originally on the indie corner at the time uh, Benno, who'd been doing the show on, uh, who does the show also in post uh, British wrestling experience, he was in contact with the owner of that. He said he wanted a podcast. And so we started doing a podcast. It was just British wrestling. And then um, I'm trying to think how long ago. It would have been March. We then got the opportunity to go on to Grapple. Um, you Gareth, who, who runs the Grapple app, and he's a good friend, really good, really great guy. And so we started doing that. And it was like kind of. Since then, we've gone weekly and we've decided to go completely berserk in terms of covering anything and everything that we fancy. So it was one week. We didn't do that much. Ben, I went to a convention and we went to watch a family show in like 100 people. It's it's all kind of bonkers, but it's like trying to capture a bit of the world of wrestling with a lot of nonsense thrown in in between. Yeah. That, that particular episode was very, very entertaining, by the way. Like, you're yes. talking about the... If, if people don't... Please go subscribe to the Grapple Spotlight. Uh, JP will give, like, links and stuff like that and yep. Twitter handles and things like that. But the, the talk about Marty Jannetty just made me, like... I was dying on, on my train to work. I was just like, oh, oh. God, I, the, the Marty Jannetty talk. But we'll, we'll not get into that today. Yep. If people want to hear that it's- story... Go to the Grapple Spotlight podcast and, and download that episode. <laughs> it's a convention. Ben went to like the, the big wrestling convention in, in the UK in Liverpool, right? That's right. Yeah, it was called For the Love of Wrestling. And, and you and, J- and Joe Lemon went to this independent show that had Marty yeah. Jannetty at it. It was the complete opposite end. We were at this kind of very low rent, like kind of real family independent show, which had six wrestlers on it. And it managed to do a two-hour show, and everyone left happy. It was like, 
this is kind of brilliant performance act that they've managed to pull here and everyone seems perfectly happy with it. So it was kind of great. Um, yeah, although, yeah, Benno that weekend got to, yeah, he got to meet everyone and there were other stories he said. I'll let you know about them off the air. Oh, yeah, please. Ma- like, please, Ma- I- Marty Jannetty kind of is what you'd imagine Marty Jannetty to oh, be. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, not, we'll not get into that. This is about Japanese wrestling. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I wanted to say, like, I, I, I listen. I, I, I'm there mainly for the wrestling talk, but... I occasionally enjoy the the EastEnders uh, mentions, even though I don't I, I don't watch it. But it's like, oh, I'm familiar with that. Slat and like Coronation Street are the are the two British exports that get over put on like TV back when I was like growing up on uh, wow. our national kind of uh, television station in Canada, which was the CBC, would show. Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure they showed both both EastEnders and and uh, Coronation Street on the. You, People would go mental for a channel like that here if you could have both one after the other. They'd lose the plot because they'd be so happy about it. Because are they? Yeah. Are they run? So, do they run head to head? Sometimes, very rarely, they kind of go half an hour within each other. They're like, yeah, I never expected when doing a wrestling podcast that I think I'd be talk. I have to be like watching British soap operas on Christmas Day, knowing full well that it would come up in a podcast in the future. It's a strange, strange world. British, I mean, for any, um, I suppose, any American listeners, and I don't know about Canadian soap operas as much. I imagine they're not as overtly soapy as Canadians, as, sorry, as uh, American soaps can be. And British soap operas are very bleak. They're, like, really, really, like, dark and damaged. It seems odd that we have them on in primetime TV and Uh, people watch them in their millions. I don't know. I think, like... I haven't watched a Canadian like drama in like years, but we we tend to be kind of like that middle ground of American and like, and British television. I feel like mm. there's a there's a, a move towards being kind of more realistic. Like I, I feel of Canadian like aesthetically Canadian television in general has a more of a British aesthetic, but obviously like our vocabulary, our syntax, our pronunciation is going to be more closer to Americans. Um, yeah. I will say this: like I remember when I was in high school, and I'm not gonna say when but like this is when the original degrassi junior high was on right and everyone oh. in school would say to me oh this is the most realistic depiction of high school life in canada <laughs> and I, I go oh fuck okay i'm gonna watch this and then i watch this i'm like this is fucking ridiculous none of these people exist in the high school i go to i've never seen any of these people exist in the junior high school like that or when i was in junior high school or i've never seen anyone like this in any high school that i've been to besides my own like going to play volleyball and other 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 schools <laughs> like none of these people exist what the fuck are people talking about this is not realistic fuck this show and i stopped watching it i have to admit i watched a lot of degrassi junior high we got that here that was like a kind of i'm t- for some reason i got the image of the girl with the big hair it was like in the very first episode of it is that spike that was spike right it, it might it might well have been yeah and i think it like might have been one of my first crushes um because there was a reason why I watched that show, but yeah, it was like, this is what Canadian school is like. And we probably, we took it as gospel. It's like, well, he must be like this. No, it's, it it's, wasn't like a TV that. Program. It was not like that at all. Trust me on this. <laughs> I was, I was in high school <clears throat> at the same time as that show. And, and like, listen, people, first of all, if anyone had nicknames like Spike, Snake, or Wheels, they would have been like hounded mercilessly by everyone else by like, why are you calling yourself yeah. Wheels? Like, no one had nicknames like that, okay? No one. I don't know anyone who had nicknames in, in high school or or in, earlier in, in junior high school or what we call middle school. But 
Let, let's <laughs> let's yes, sorry. No, no, no. It's it's much as my fault. It is not even ca- calling it fault. But let's let's get focused back to what we mm-hmm. want. What we want to talk about, and what I think the listeners want to hear, and that's uh, the G One Climax Tournament Final from August thirteenth, two thousand. Uh, Manabu Dakinishi versus Kensuke Sasaki. So let's let's talk a little bit about the the uh, format of the uh, the tournament itself. So the two thousand. G1 Climax uh, used a, an interesting five-man, four-block system for the first time. So the winners of each block would then advance to a four-man single elimination tournament to determine who would be the G1 winner. Uh, the tournament was held over six days from August 7th to 9th, uh, the first half of that, and then would move to the Sumo Hall in Tokyo for the last three dates on the 11th, the 12th, and the 13th. Uh, it moved from two cities... To, from uh, last year was was two, Osaka and Tokyo, and then it moved to uh, Osaka, Hiroshima, and uh, Tokyo. So it went from the Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium, which is now known as uh, Edion Arena, to the famous Hiroshima Sun Plaza, and then back to Tokyo Sumo Hall, which is like I'm sure pe- the wrestlers were like, oh, we got to go back to that sweat box because I, I'll say this, JP, I, like I've mm. I've been in Osaka Prefectural Gymnasium. The air conditioner in that is beautiful. It works fine. Uh, Hiroshima Sun Plaza, I've never been to, but I'm gonna err on the side of like that. They probably have a decent air conditioner, so it's not it's not brutal in there. But Sumo Hall is an absolute sweat box, which is why I've named the show "Cruel Summer." Wow, uh, I remember reading your article on that. And is it the higher up you get in Sumo Hall, the worse it gets? Well, yeah, heat rises, it, right? Yeah, it's it, but it's like to the point of unbearable. Yes. And, and you've got the little boxes as well, haven't you, where you're kind of sat into as well. Well, the problem with oh. those is, like, they'll probably sell, like, four tickets because they want to maximize their profits. So those boxes you can either, for shows, can either be designated, like, two to a box, which is which is manageable. Three is, three is okay, tolerable. Four is absolutely disgusting. Like, I've done four for actual sumo, and it was brutal. Mm. Like, my back was killing me after an hour. And I, I don't like to sit in those. If it's just me and two, one other person or two other people, we can manage it. But ideally, you only want two people in one of those boxes. You want to bring your own cushion. Mm. They don't give you cushions. Oh, they, yeah, they don't give you cushions because they don't want you throwing the shit into the ring anymore. So they stop giving you oh. cushions. So you have to bring your own. Uh, but you can, like, just if you buy a lot of food, you can just create this nice kind of picnic effect, which is lovely when you're watching wrestling. <laughs> so, I've done it for... I didn't do it for a New Japan show. I've done it for I, I'm gonna say it was either a Wrestle One show or it was an All Japan show that I at Sumo Hall that I did like me and just me and my one friend. We we were able to get these boxes to ourselves and we just like bought a bunch of like you know food f- food from the convenience store and just like spread it out and we were like having a picnic of sorts. It was it was lovely. Oh, it sounds it sounds like that's the perfect way to be watching wrestling. Being able to kind of have a nice bespoke picnic in front of you in a not too cramped seat, um, as much as a wild sumo hall would be fantastic to see. Uh, I think um, if when I get a chance to go over, like I definitely want to experience one of those. No, oh, for sure. I think you know, like to me, Budokan is better. I, I can safely say since I've been to both now that Budokan is a much nicer place. One is more comfortable. To the seating is better. Like, and, and mm. I was able to sit in the upper tier level, not on the floors, so that that helped as well. And I had really excellent seats for all three nights of the G One last year. So, 
it, like they're running the G1 again in Budokan this summer. So if that's something you're you're interested in, JP, I I think you're in for a hell of a treat. Budokan is also as legendary a building as Sumo Hall is. So sound, it always looks amazing. Yeah. All right, so let's get back to let's talk about the block. So in a block of mm. uh, this four man this four block uh, tournament, we have Yuji Nagata, uh, Takashi Azuka, Tatsumi Fujinami. Uh, Jushin Thunder Liger making his first appearance in the G1 as a junior heavyweight, and Tatsutoshi Goto. In B Block, we have the current IWGP champion, Kensuke Sasaki, Satoshi Kojima, uh, Brian Johnston, Osamu Kido, and Hiro Saito. Do you remember Brian Johnston, JP? Am I right in thinking he was like, he was kind of like a, was he like an MMA guy? He's got a big dude. Yes. Yes, ringing very vaguely, ringing a bell like the name is like of these kind of big, big hoss Americans who would turn up, who didn't you don't ever hear about in Japan. Yes, he was in a group with uh, Nagata, Yoshie, and I'm gonna say Nakanishi. It was called Fighting mm. Cl- Fighting Club G Eggs, which is one of those, <laughs> one of those names you you'll only find in in Japan. But definitely after maybe after the show you can. Go check out fighting. I think it was Fighting Club G Eggs. That was the name of their their unit, which is very really. When I saw that, you know, I was like in the listings for like the the, the tapes I would buy from like a tape dealer. I was like, what the hell is Fighting Club G Eggs? What does have to do with wrestling? <laughs> what do eggs have to do with wrestling? I I don't know. It's very strange. But let's move on to C Block. In there we have Manabu Nakanishi, uh, Hiroyoshi Tenzan, Tadao Yasuda, Osama Nishimura, and Kenzo Suzuki. Uh, who my, a lot of people might remember from his uh, WBE days with his wife, Hiroko. Uh, in D-Block, Masahiro Chono, Juji Harada, uh, Shiro Koshinaka, Yutaka Yoshie, and uh, the second junior to be making his appearance in this tournament is Tatsuhito Takaiwa, who I can see being in this for two reasons. One, he's like one of uh, Riki Choshu's uh, boys, like, you know, like mm. Riki Choshu being the booker of New Japan at the time. And also, he was a Believe it or not, if you look at Takaiwa, you, you, you don't really think it, but he's a power junior, very similar to like what Shingo Takagi is, uh, very kind of like a junior heavyweight version of Tomohiro Ishii. He doesn't look like it. He looks very plain, like body-wise, but he is a very, very strong man. JP. Oh, wow. Right, because, I mean, I, I've just got to... Um, being reminded by uh, just having a look of him in there, he doesn't seem necessarily like a power. He kind of has the... Look more of a kind of an eat like he has that hard look, and he's kind of like a junior Ishii of sorts. Yeah, but his one of his moves was a triple power bomb. You know, he'd power bomb oh a guy, pull him back up, and do it like three times. And he, if you if you need a refresher of actually how good he was, a lot of his stuff with Otani in their tag team, they were the first IWGP Junior Tag Team Champions. Uh, but also, like his stuff in Zero One is really good. But he was the he, no, he wasn't the first. He was, I think, the second GHC junior heavyweight champion, or he was the third. He he had this amazing match with Marafuji, which starts off with him picking up Marafuji. This is the start of the match. And powerbombing him and tossing him over the top rope onto the Noah ramp, the entrance ramp. And then it just went bonkers from there. So I, I really recommend if you can, you could probably find that on like YouTube or Daily Motion or wherever you, you want to watch like your old wrestling that's not actually, you know, available on 
like by legitimate means. Go go check that match out. Takaiwa versus Marufuji. I think for, I'm gonna say from uh, 2001, maybe 2002, early 2000s. Go check that out. That's right. I think it's called Navigation in Raging Ocean, which is a, again a fantastic name for an event to have. But that sounds absolutely brilliant. Yeah, gonna definitely get on that. Yes. Uh, okay, so let's get back to the G1. Uh, so the A block winner turned out to be Yuji Nagata, and he faced B block winner Kensuke Sasaki. Of course, Sasaki won, and he would go to the finals. The other uh, semifinals was C block winner Manabu Nakanishi took on D block winner Masahiro Chano, and Nakanishi won. And I, I gotta say, the prospect of watching Nakanishi and Chono in 2000 does not sound appealing, JP. That is very true, because it's very hard not to think of, of Nakanishi as we see him today in terms of being completely immobile, especially as New Japan has kind of expanded and been available worldwide. It's like, you, it's very hard to kind of see the value in him. I have to admit, like going back and watching sort of old Nakanishi from then, there is there is that kind of in, that, there's that kind of nice comparison point that I'm wanting to make. But, and like Sasuke, uh, Sasaki ever since the... Um, power warrior days so i think for me i was i was happy to see sasuke i think i was more curious to see what what Naka, what nakanishi would be like i think nakanishi was one of those guys obviously had a tremendous look and i'm going to talk about uh, like one of the things that you'll notice like if people who are not older fans might come to this sh- like watch this show on new japan world and to- and fire it up and then see like oh this is g1 finals and they and they turn on and they see two guys who look like young alliance fighting each other because of like they're wearing just black trucks and boots yep no knee pads and it's like it's the most basic look and one of the things that you got to remember is that that's the look of when new japan started like antonio noki seiji sakaguchi tatsumi fujinami all wore black trunks and and, and boots and that's so these guys are kind of going doing a throwback because like muto didn't wear muto was much more colorful hashimoto wore long tights he looked like fat elvis Chono was doing his German <laughs> leather fetish gimmick, you know, at this time. So, like, two guys who are, like... And of course, Sasaki was Power Warrior, so he was doing the, the Sting, Road Warrior kind of look. But he went back to his his black trunks and boots because he wanted to look like, you know, a, a strong-style wrestler. And Nakanishi, because of his Olympic background, was always considered, like, kind of this throwback to, like, the days of Enoki and Fujinami. He had the rookie nickname as well, didn't he, Nakanishi at the time? So I suppose it would have nicely played in played into that kind of aspect of his career where he was at even though he'd won the G one the, the year before, there's that there's still that idea of, of him being sort of the young guy coming up along with the, the kind of Nagatas of the world. Yeah, and the thing I wanted to make a point about Nakanishi's wrestling was that he was a very competent basic wrestler, I feel. And we'll talk about this during mm. the course of the match, I'm sure, but the thing is, I don't think he knew how to string together matches. I don't think his, the flow of his matches was always hurt by his lack of like thinking, being able to think on his feet. I think he had to always think about what he was going to do next after each move, which is very evident in the match he had with Muto the previous year. And I think, mm. and it, it's it can be hidden a bit better because of Muto. Like Sasaki, at this point, like he's he's a great wrestler, but he's not Kensuke Sasaki that we would get to know post New Japan when he would do freelancing in All Japan. He would do freelancing in Noah, most most famously. Um, but mm. this is not the Kensuke we're getting there. We're getting the raw, still kind of raw Kensuke, who's a very good wrestler, but he's not uh, like he's not Kensuke Sasaki that would become legendary later on in in the two thousands. But let, let's get to the match itself. Uh, we got 
Uh, both are wearing, like I said, their, their strong style, young lions style gear. And what do you think about the crowd at the start of this match? I thought it was really good. I, I mean, it seems like a hot crowd. It's great because it's kind of packed at, at ringside. I mean, they've, uh, they've, it's a very, it's not like a molten hot crowd that you would see in earlier G1 finals. I'm kind of thinking of like 95, but the crowd is definitely, there's that kind of night air of anticipation. They're kind of much more, I, I thought much more towards Sasaki than, than Nakanishi at that point in time. Cause this is obviously in the midst of the kind of building Sasaki up to be, to be the guy as obviously he was IWGP champion as well. I'm going, both of them are going to be the first guy who's, no, he wasn't the first guy who's won it twice. Um, uh, no, sorry. Uh, he's going for um, the uh, the of holding the IWGP title and G one. Is that the first time that had been managed to be pulled off? I, or I got that completely wrong. I know Mudo did it. Mudo did it. Ah, uh, Mudo did it. My bad. My bad. Uh, no, sorry, it's late here. Brains all over the place. It's okay. No, no worries. Uh, so yeah, I think the idea is that he is the champion, so he wants to run through the tournament. He wants to match Muto's accomplishment. And he, yeah. he, so he's like, he's very, very focused and determined to win this. Um, uh, so like, I, I think because I've reviewed nine previous G1s before this, like I felt the crowd was a, a noticeably a little less loud for the start of this match than like previous years. Um, I, mm. I'm going to say maybe because I, maybe Nakanishi going in was, was a bit of a surprise. I know he was getting a big push at the time, but I think more people were into like Nagata I think more people were still into mm. uh, people like Tenzan and Kojima, like because they were better wrestlers. I and it's 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 objectively, you know, you know, it's objectively it's an objective statement. Like, what I'm trying to say is that those three are much better wrestlers and will put on a better match with Saki than than you know than Nakanishi would. So maybe people are like, ah, oh, we're get-. it's like if I was watching the G1 this year and in the finals. Mm was Kota Bushi, and I'm like thinking, oh, please let it be Naito. Oh, please let it be uh, Sonata. Let it be Okada. And I get Jay White. It's like... Oh, yep. I completely... And obviously they've gone and and they've seen another... They've already seen an earlier Nakanishi match that night as well. So that's going to be something that's going to be obviously playing on. They're probably at the point where they're, they're kind of sick of him at that stage. Yeah. Well, we'll start with the match. It starts with a test of strength uh, using a knuckle lock, uh, uh, knuckle lock lockup. Uh, it's appropriate for like these two powerhouse wrestlers. Uh, Kensuke starts with tossing Nakanishi aside, really forcibly. It's like he just like like he like he weighed nothing. He just tosses poor old Nakanishi aside. Uh, there's a dueling shoulder block se- sequence. Uh, Sasaki wins this and knocks Nakanishi down. Uh, Nakanishi powers out of a reverse chin lock and tosses Sasaki aside. So he's like saying, hey, you're not the only one who's strong around here, motherfucker. I'm going to toss you around. And so I I think this is when the crowd starts like, okay, we're going to see a big hoss battle at this point, JP. Yep, absolutely. It is is at that stage. And I think that's... I have to say it was at a point that I kind of picked up as well. And the way they made the power moves look kind of so effortless, like you say, when when Sasaki manages to, to throw Nakanishi around. And... The way, um, just at, at points during that, that it's it's just kind of, it, it builds up really well, that test of strength, because it then kind of leads nicely into the kind of, I'm sure you're going to tell us a second, into the kind of, the first sort of exchange of chops as well. And I, I thought it was like a good, it was the only logical way they could start out a match like this, considering yeah. they both had, had matches earlier on, given the, the kind of similarity of it. 
it seemed like, the, I suppose, the most sensible way. And given that you've got a wrestler as limited as Nakanishi, it did feel like they were playing, to, playing, definitely playing to his strengths. For sure, for and you mentioned the chop exchange. So, which mm. uh, Nakanishi wins that one surprisingly enough because I, I think Sasaki is more famous for throwing chops. But uh, at this point, uh, Kensuke starts throwing straight punches to Nakanishi's head, and then in this very dramatic moment, the director cuts towards Riki Choshu, who is watching uh, his two proteges from the Isle of Sumo Hall, and uh, this was. I thought it made sense to go to him like because you're really playing the story of these two guys who are so closely connected to like mm. Choshu as like being his students like Sasaki for more so but Nakanishi was also in that in that group like the other guys like you know Tenzan was always connected with with Chono uh, Kojima would mm. later be more identified with Muto as being Muto's kind of protege and like Nagata was kind of like this I don't, I'm not sure exactly who Nagata was always paired with as, as far as like which senior of his was his mentor. Mm. Uh, I'm going to say it was probably Hashimoto before he left. So to start zero one would probably have been who he would have been paired up with. Like if Hashimoto stayed in the company because of the similarity of their styles. Uh, but yeah, we saw, we see Ricky Choshi watching the, the match looking probably, he's probably very hot. He's probably wishing he had a beer in his hand. Uh, Nakanishi stomps on Sasaki's leg and then applies the stretch muffler. Uh, he lets go and applies a single leg crab. And this is where, I, where I, I'm coming to the point where I, like, Nakanishi doesn't really have good psychology, in my opinion, JP. Like, he, he goes from this one move and then he switches it to another one, but that doesn't really make much sense. I, I think a stretch muffler is a much more effective move than the single leg crab. Yeah, there's a, and I think, yeah, this is where you're right. This is where you can kind of see the, really the limitations in Nakanishi. And there is that aspect of, he has a move and then he moves over to another one and and he just kind of, the transition between them is like this. It's almost like he's not even attempting to do it, but you could really see the limitations in him as a worker with it, because I, I never found like necessarily the crab he had. And, you know, I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of the match. Um, it, it didn't feel like I, even at that early stage, like it was particularly convincing. No, there's a match. There's a point in the, in the Mudo Nakanishi match, where like Muto's going for his signature uh, corner springboard hand elbow right into into the corner, and then Nakanishi yep. catches him, and I th- and I think like automatically I'm conditioned to think he's going to give him a German suplex, but he puts him in the Argentinian backbreaker, and this is like maybe five minutes, five six minutes into the match, and I'm like that doesn't make any sense at all. Like I think he was going to go for a German, and I thought I'm going to put him in my finisher. It's like it's it's not the finish, dude. Like. Come on, what, what are you thinking? <laughs> but let's move on. Uh, uh, Nakanishi no-sells uh, uh, Kensuke's signature face crusher move where like he shoots the guy into the corner, guy bounces out, and then he hits the ropes and he gives him a bulldog face crusher. He just pops up after that. And then he hits uh, Sasaki with a spear. Then there's a big jumping knee. Uh, then you get these uh, duel- dueling lariat sequences, uh, which, again, Nakanishi wins that. So you can see they're they're firmly behind. Nakanishi to giving him as much as they can within the match itself, JP. Yep. Um, I liked these Larry exchange. Not as good as the Larry exchange later on that, that, that happens in the match. But yeah, they, they, I mean, there is really that, that kind of determination to kind of make him seem as strong going up against an IWGP champion. Um, I thought as well it was interesting you mentioned about the spear he hit. Again, it's very hard if you're looking through sort of 2019 eyes of thinking actually this was a half-decent spear. It's still not great, but it, it's it's a hell of a lot better than than um, what he's able to do these days. But yeah, they they really 
did they really were determined at this early stage as well. There's a lot of Sasuke, uh, Sasaki selling. Oh, I keep on saying that tonight. There's a lot of Sasaki selling. Um, because obviously I think they were playing into an angle earlier on in the night as well about what, of it being slightly injured against, against Nagata as well. Um, but like, it was, it was always a case where, um, like in those early exchanges, in those early Larry exchanges, sort of Nakanishi getting that battle, winning those battles. Yeah. So it's definitely like, it's part of the Nakanishi push. I think that, you know, like started from like two years ago and was moving into this point, uh, Mm. It will talk about about Nakanishi as you know a star in New Japan following this, but uh, we continue with the match and uh, let's see what we were, we're okay. Nakanishi runs into a big knee to the face, and then Sasaki follows up with a big judo throw. And like a lot of people forget, like Kensuke was like really good at doing these really wonderful like arm judo throws over his head. You know, like very very impressive, especially someone the size of Nakanishi. Oh, he's yeah. It's at these points like. I- have to say, it, it, with Sasaki, I found myself getting like obviously incredibly nostalgic during these points, and you kind of remember what a an absolute kind of unit he is at these points. And it's like you're saying earlier on in the match when he threw around Nakanishi like it was like, and you know at this point, what we're sort of a good seven eight minutes into the match, and he's still able to kind of throw him about. It's pretty incredible. It is, and then uh, at this point, Nakanishi catches a, a lariat attempt from Kensuke. And then he throws Sasaki over his head with a belly to belly suplex. And at this point, the crowd is now yeah. finally. I think they're 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 enjoying the match, but they're not at that next gear. At this at this point, like Nakanishi throwing Sasaki over his head with a belly to belly was like the point where the crowd was like, "Oh shit, okay, shit's on now." So at this point, then they're, they're doing another Larry exchange, like I think the one you're referring to, and this is where the sweat yep. is just flying with every impact of each man's hand against each other each other's. Uh, chess and there is just amazing like this is okay this now we're in a g1 climax final this is this is what i wanted to see uh and then let's see yeah crowd like i said is well 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 into watching these two guys beat the shit out of each other uh mm-hmm. we see a power slam attempt from sasaki is blocked and turned into the first argentinian backbreaker attempt uh kensuke escapes but nakanishi hits a saito suplex and then back into the Argentinian backbreaker, which he then turns into a gut buster, which, again, this, is, this goes to this idea of, like, you got him in your move. You got him twice in your move, your, your finisher, and, you, and you, then you, like, hit him. You, you work on his, his stomach, not his back, I, which I don't understand, JP. Yeah, that was really odd, because I thought as well what they did, in terms of him getting the first rack on, is he held it for a good long time. So if nothing else, he was wearing him down. And it was really good, because it was a case where... You could see Sasaki getting his hands under um, Nakanishi's fingers and lifting it up over his neck, uh, just trying to sort of release that grip. So like you say, when he goes for it again, and then he drop like, you know, he, he drops it onto his knee. You're like, what? That doesn't really make too... Yeah, it doesn't really make too much sense. Um, but yeah, like you say about Nakanishi, he's not really one for kind of... Work, working out the kind of logic and match structure. He just wants to hit his, like, get his signature moves in. Oh, I didn't, I didn't yeah. do the gut buster yet. He's shitting, yeah. Yeah, I didn't do the gut buster yet. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that from the Argentinian break breaker, which is my finisher. Anyways, Nak- <laughs> uh, Nakanishi at this point hits a series of spears <clears throat> and then starts slapping Sasaki. Uh, he then goes for another spear, but and then Kensuke, like, th- thinks better of that and greets him with a knee to Nakanishi's face, which looked incredible. Uh, Nakanishi uh, 
recovers and he tries another spear. Uh, he starts his uh, tr- tremendous, uh, you know, his trademark jumping up and down like his what I call his hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, yeah, kind of spot uh, <laughs> with his with rolling his fist, doesn't it? Oh yeah, it looks like he looks yeah. like he looks like an idiot. I'm sorry, like I, he does. I never it looks thought he weird like when he's doing it as an older man these days, still doing it. It's like doing that that in slow motion, but people seem to react to it now. But it's, at yeah. at that, you know, now it's nostalgia, so I get it. Yeah, you know, when he does the oh, I get it. It's nostalgia, but when he was doing it, when he's younger like when he's becoming up and coming star i'm like it's not really a, a good look for you know a potential iwg champion jumping up and down like an idiot waving his fist around <laughs> you know i i just just never got into nakanishi this is this is one of the reasons why yeah <laughs> so let's see where, where am i yeah he uh he hits a running lariat for only a one count kesuke kicks out at one and then mm. it's just rinse and repeat he just keeps going for these spears and these one counts uh, finally, Sasaki hits the Northern Lights bomb, then a Boston Crab, which is the finish of the match, which was very yeah. surprising. Yeah, because it feels like it's kind of out of nowhere. There was no build-up to the Boston Crab at all, like, during during the match. Like I say, he hits, he hits the Brain Buster before that, and and then it gets, like, straight to the Crab, and it did feel like, what? Like, it kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? And I don't think... The, the crowd, like like you say, they they had built up really nicely, and I thought obviously like one of the point like during the kind of Larry exchanges and during the one counts as well with the um with the one with the one kickouts from the lariat. But yeah, I thought at this point it was it ended really quickly as well. It's like he tapped really quickly, so like all that work they put in to, at the start of the match of making him look really strong kind of ends up being kind of dissipated where. You know, you could have had him survive. You could have, like, frankly, teased it for a couple more minutes. I think they would have been able to do that, of maybe him getting to the ropes and then maybe trying it again, being sort of suitably worn down. But it was strange because it wasn't something they built to. No, and the thing with this match is that it, it, went, it was, like, 19 minutes and 42 seconds. So it, like, it could have gone another, like, 10 minutes. You know, that would be normal for a G1. Yeah. So I thought the Northern Lights bomb was going to be, like, he kicks out. You know, like, Nakanishi would kick out and then... Kensuke would hit him with yep. some more big moves. Not, not with a submission, because at no point was he working on Nakanishi's back in this match. So I got to think, my, I'm, I'm speculating here, that something went wrong in the match, or Nakanishi fucked up and he tapped out when he shouldn't have. I don't, I don't know. That's just my speculation, because I do think this match felt like it was going to go longer. That's how it seemed to be building. Okay, he's going to kick out of the Northern Lights bomb. They're going to do mm. like another five minutes of big moves, and then you know, Nakanishi will get his rally. He'll try to pin Sasaki, but he won't win. And then finally, maybe another Northern Lights bomb, big lariat, Northern Lights bomb again, and he pins him. That's what I would think would have happened in this match. But Northern Lights bomb kicks out Boston Crab. Okay, he's he's just wearing him down. Pit, he submitted. What? What? I'm, yeah. So I gotta think something it, went wrong. Ah, uh, that would sound about right. It's it's kind of you know. It's strange for that to happen, and obviously thinking of Ricky Choshu, who was watch you could see obviously watching it from the from one of the walkways, just sort of watching on on the match. You sort of wonder a penny for his thoughts at that moment in time and what he would have made for it. But yeah, yeah, like you, like watching it, you kind of think, okay, this is the logical outcome of where this is going to be going, and it's the easiest way, and it's the way that keeps everyone strong. But and I think that's that's the thing that you kind of you don't want to say that the the ending of the match is the thing you take away from it. 
but it's hard not to view the match without thinking about the ending being as kind of anticlimactic as it is. Because it is a bit of an anticlimax. It is, definitely. Um, so with this win, though, Kensuke has won his second G1. Uh, he mm-hmm. His first one was in 97 over Hiroshi Tanzan. And uh, yeah, he normally the winner would receive an IWGP title shot at some point after this. But he's the IWGP champion, so he wouldn't get a shot at himself. So, <laughs> But he would... Yeah. He, this is this, the big... This is before they would do the big angle with uh, Toshiaki Kawada, uh, who's yeah. from who is the All Japan, you know, top star because of the exodus of Misawa and company into Noah. So this, at this point, New Japan and All Japan finally decided to do an angle together. Of course, this is not All Japan at its strength. This is All Japan at its weakest point. And, but Kawada is mm. still a huge name, so they would do the angle, the, the match with Kawada versus Sasaki, and then Kawada would beat him. Was like going and. Yeah, Kawada would beat him, and then he would vacate the title. Uh, at the- That's right. He tries to give him the title. Does um, Saki, Sasaki tries to give him the title, and he doesn't take accept it because he says he's not worthy. Something like that, and like that was at the October 9th uh, show called Do Judge at the Tokyo Dome, which you know be- because it was like Kawada versus Sasaki, it drew a nice house, I believe. But mm. so, but so there's no title shot from this, basically from the G1 winner because one, he's the champion. I would, I would like to see. Maybe at some point in recent, in like in the upcoming G one, like the champion, like win the G one because you think they're not gonna have the mm. champion win. They're, he's because the champion's got to have a challenger. But I always feel like you could you could get around that by just saying like like say Okada wins the G one and he says, well I get to pick my challenger at the Tokyo Dome and then he picks you know Naito or or somebody or you, he picks someone else besides Naito. Like say it's this year, and like the Naito has to fight his way towards getting that title shot because he feels he deserves it more than anyone else. But I think that's kind of like where you could go with like having the champion win the G1 in, in, in like these days. I think so. They've kind of, they've kind of threatened it, haven't they? That they've threatened there's the potential that they might do something along those lines. And I can see them certainly with the cut, it'd be a really interesting direction for them to go in. And it would kind of spruce up that period, I think between the end of the G1 and through King of Pro Wrestling off towards the end of the year. I think it might add a, a good bit of mileage for that if they've, if they've got a good storyline in place. I think my thought, and it's and I don't know whether or not you would agree with me, in terms of having... Oh, we watched the Champions, uh, the Champion Carnival in all Japan this, um, this year, and it seemed to me that it was very much the process of kind of creating the legend of Kento Miyahara by having him as as Triple Crown champion, go through and, and winning it. And they did obviously have some title defences um, set up with uh, with the people he lost to without the tournament. And I kind of thought, okay, it seems to me that they've gone on the kind of, at this stage, it's like they've got the full go-ahead for the Sasaki uh, mega push in 99. They've got him winning that. Then they've got him winning the, uh, got him winning the IWGP title against Tenru, um, which is a match I really enjoyed, actually. Um, and then winning the G1 and then having the series with Kawada as well. Like it, it seemed to be about building it. And it's, it's kind of strange because, and it, I'm sure it's a point you were probably going to go on to the amount of flux in Japanese wrestling that happens over those few months is, is kind of incredible in a way. And you've got Sasaki, at, at, he's kind of, a, I'm not saying he's not necessarily forgotten, but you've got the formation of Noah, you've got the all Japan stuff. It, 
it's like a really insane period of time in, in Japanese wrestling history. Oh, it definitely. Like, and this is like when I think you'll see the creeping in of Inoki's influence on the booking. Because this is yeah. this would be the last time like Nakanishi would ever appear in the G1 finals. But he stayed in the company. But this is, you know, this is Kensuke's last G1, uh, like in the finals. He would appear in subsequent tournaments, but he would never get to the mm. final again. I think he was getting the D push because I think, I'm not exactly sure about the, the, the timeline, but the, this is a, around the beginning of the like the kind of the decentralization of of booking power around Ricky Choshu and more towards this kind yeah. of Inoki and what they would call would later become called the Inoki Office, which would like see uh, you know the Makai Club come in. You see the the strong influence of MMA come into into New Japan at this point, which is not my favorite part of. Uh, you know, no, of, of Noah's of New Japan's history, like, and, and I gotta, re- re- I have to review every G one. Thankfully, most of the G ones <laughs> from that point are are pretty good, actually. Uh, but there's there's one that I, I watched recently. I'm not gonna say it's gonna be a surprise for the the listeners of this series that I was just watching. And I was like, this is actually the worst G one I've seen to this point because <laughs> I I've watched most of them ahead of time before recording each episode. So uh, you would think, okay, Nakanishi, Muto, not good. It was okay. It was okay. This was okay. It wasn't great. It was good. I would say it was fun to watch for the most part. But there's one mm. coming up that I was just like, uh, what What the fuck am I watching? This is terrible. <laughs> it's going to make for good, good podcasting because I'm going to bury it probably really hard. And my co-host, whoever that might be, is probably going to be like, no, no, WH, it's going to be I'm like, no. It's shit. <laughs> we'll see what, what, what. Please listen for that. Keep an eye out for that one, JP. You know, in the future. definitely will do. All right, definitely will do. I, I, I think I know the one you mean, and I'm like, yeah, I can see how you. I can see how how you can come to that opinion on that. But yeah, definitely have a and have a listen out for that one. I'm looking forward to you kicking off about that. Yeah. So let's get to the point of the show. Now we're we're into the trivia part. I, I don't think I I, war- I I think I might have warned you that there's going to be trivia on this show uh we're gonna start with we're gonna start with some pop culture trivia and i geared this towards you you being from the uk so i i found uk trivia so jp in august of 2000 what was the number one song on the uk uh pop charts okay my temptation is i want to say it was brit pop so i wouldn't be able to say i don't know if you're able to give hints or tips or anything i'll give you it's it's not what you would consider Britpop. So it's not Oasis. It's not Blur. It's not Blur. the verb. It's a solo artist. It's a female. Oh. um, Solo artist. Female. Oh. She was in a, she, she was in a famous group before. One of the Spice Girls? Yes. One of the then Spice Girls. That might well have been. Um, it wouldn't be Victoria. Um, she couldn't sing for Toffee. I want to say it's. I want to say is it Mel? I want to say Mel C. Yes. I'll say Mel C. It's Mel C. What's the name of the song? Do you know? Oh God! Now you're asking. Um, Mel C. No, I can't think of it. Sorry. Okay, yeah, it's fine. Not without cheating. No, no, no problem. It's called "I Turn to You," which I, I have no idea what this song is. The only like Mel C. song that I knew outside of the Spice Girls would have been the the duet she did with Brian Adams, Canada's own Brian Adams. Not not hey. not the former crush, just so people know that. <laughs> uh, I'd pay to see that. Or or who's no who's the other guy in in like it was Brian Adams and the former Adam Bomb. What was his name? Oh, Brian Clark. 
Brian Clark. Yeah, the Brian two, Clark. The two yeah. Brian's. Yeah. Chronic. <laughs> Happy days. WCW at its finest. Finest, yeah. Chronic. Good old, good old Brian Clark oh. and Brian Adams. Um, the number one album in the UK at this point. Right, year two thousand. Oh my god! Again, resisting every urge to cheat by looking online. Um, ba, 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 ba. It's not a UK oh. act; it's an American act. Okay, Red Hot Chili Peppers. It's a boy band. Oh, um, oh, uh, it wouldn't be New Kids on the Block because that's a bit too early. NSYNC. Uh, it's the other one. Is it New Kids on the Block? No, no, no. It's the, it's the other no. boy band at the time. Not that's not NSYNC. Oh right, okay. Um, oh Jesus, who are they? Backstreet Boys. I'm struggling. WH. It's the Backstreet, Backstreet Boys. Yeah. Oh, Backstreet's back. How can I forget that? And it's, Honestly, and it's the year 2000. Me is yeah. very disappointed. Sorry, sorry. It's it's the year 2000. So the name of the album is, of course, Millennium. Yeah. <laughs> wait was robbie williams did that song millennium by robbie williams come out at yeah. this time? the same as well i i think it would have done because at that point take that who are ironically touring the uk as we speak um like there was yeah he he would have had that song come out around the same time robbie williams wait so it would have been it, so take back is it back together like all the original members including robbie williams I want to say it's including Robbie Williams because they're doing a stadium tour um, and they're being supported by Rick Astley. Yeah, I would go see that. I think they are. I would go see that just for, like, they should do one of them. What was the name of that production group in the 80s? Like, it was, like, Rick Astley. It was Kylie Minogue. It was Stock, Aiken, and Waterman? Was it? Waterman. That's right. Stock, Aiken, and Waterman. Yeah, they used to, like, it was like a pop factory. And they were like the earliest ones before there was like X Factor. I think it was called um, Pop Stars. They were like they used to present that as well. Oh man, yeah, you know like... I would go. I would go see a Stock Aiken Waterman like stadium tour of like Rick Astley, Kylie Minogue, and whoever else they produced. That would be maybe. I think they get that the other guy from Neighbors from the Australian soap opera. Like what was his name? Jason Donovan or something? Wasn't he one of their? Oh yeah, too? Jason Donovan. Yeah, I'd be all over Jason Donovan being there. I'm looking at it. You'll be very disappointed. Only three members are take that, isn't it? It's Gary Barlow. Um, is it Mark Owen? And how? And uh, I want to say Howard Donald. There's no Jason Orange and there's no Robbie Williams. Well, how are they going to sell in a stadium without fucking Robbie Williams, mate? I don't know. I, I think they've... I honestly think they've more or less sold it out. I think in Southampton, to, um, at time of recording... They're very close to selling out a 30,000-seater stadium. Wow, that's impressive. Without, without Robbie Williams. It's, without Robbie Williams, yeah. There is a big nostalgia market for for pop from, like, take that. I can remember the, when they broke up, the girl I was going out with at the time, inconsolable. And I have to admit, I, I, I shouldn't have laughed. I was a young man and I was an idiot. But, um... But yeah, she was absolutely devastated by them breaking up. You know that... Maybe she's got over it now. I'd like to think she has. I, that was kind of like, you know, like... Like I'm from the '80s, so like this is like when the, yeah. when the Smiths broke up. I I knew so many people, so many of my classmates were like so devastated. I was I was well, the Smiths broke up, but I thought okay, well, you know, let's just do solo projects. I was actually a big fan of Johnny Marr's like guitar work with Brian Ferry, and mm. then he would work with uh, Matt Johnson and Vava. So I was like, okay, I'm still gonna get my fix of Johnny Marr guitar playing, and and, and Morrissey is like Morrissey, you know, like it, it's not gonna be the same. But yeah, I think it turned out okay. I, I like a lot of Morrissey's early output. 
I like a lot of Johnny Marr's like work with other artists in that period of time. Like he did a lot of session work, so it, it was okay. But yeah, it, it's kind of similar to when the Smiths broke up and people were just like devastated. No, like that. I think more devastating than say like when like if various members of the Cure left, you know, Robert Smith because they were you know too yep. strung out on drugs, or you know when Alan Wilder left Depeche Mode. It was like, that was more devastating for me because I loved, like, he was my favorite part of Depeche Mode, and I don't think they sounded the same after Alan Wilder left. So, you know, like, I can see where people might have been devastated with Take That breaking up, is what I'm trying to say. There was, I, I also remember when, like, news of Kurt Cobain um, in, in Nirvana, when, when, when he killed himself, there was just, like, I mean, a lot of the kind of slightly older kids than me at the time, they were devastated. They were, abs- they were, they were absolutely crushed by it happening and it was you know yeah insane when the when these things happen you know oh i'm like that I recently was... with in 2016 when like obviously he was he's old he was an older gentleman by that but but like when bowie died i was like devastated yeah absolutely oh, absolutely it, gutted it was like a real kind of one of these kind of cultural events he'd become a like within britain as well he'd become obviously he was kind of like a it's strange to describe him as royalty someone who had the career that david bowie did but um, yeah, it was it was enormous the the reaction to to that. Um, yeah, uh, and I think you know when you see some of the bands that we have in the UK at the moment, and you think, oh God, <laughs> could do with a bit of that these days. Yeah, could, it, could, it can be a bit, a little bit bleak. Could do with a bit of Bowie into the uh, into the uh, injection into the yeah. bloodstream of uh, UK pop music. Okay, but let's let's continue with the trivia. One more yep. one more question. For the pop culture aspect, uh, what's the number one movie in the UK in August of 2000? It's an American movie, Whoa. by the way. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd probably figure that would be the case. It'd be a big summer film. Yes. Um, it's still something that's... It's a remake of a, of a 1970s film. Okay. Now you're talking, and I'm trying to think, American 1970s film, possibly like maybe a disaster film? Nah, it's, it, it stars, I'll tell you who the star is, it's Nicolas Cage. Oh, um, it's not The Rock, it's not Con Air. Um, I did a, a 70s film, is it, gone in, is it Gone in 60 Seconds? That's correct, JP, it's Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, Gone in 60, I promise you I'm not cheating at all, I can remember that. Uh, have you seen it? Oh, I, it's one of my favorite Nicolas Cage movies. Actually, of like his his <laughs> blockbuster output, I I like it more than The Rock. I hate The Rock. I I hate Con Air. Like Con Air is just really oh. disappointing to me. But I I love this oh, movie. Sacrilege. No, no. But I I love Mustang. So I'm a huge mark for like 1960s, like late 60s, early 70s Mustangs. So this has like Eleanor in it. It's like oh, it's a beautiful car. I I think. I'm trying to remember who is the director. It's not Simon West. I think it's uh, Don- Dominic... Dominic Cena. Dominic Cena was the director of this. And I thought, yeah, it's a very Michael Bayish production. He produced it and it has that feel. Or no, Jerry Bruckheimer produced it or the other guy. Yeah. The other guy. Uh, I think Don Simpson... I don't know if he died. Don Simpson died. Don Simpson died. So yeah. it's a Bruckheimer production. So it has the Michael Bay feel to it. But it's still a fun movie. Like I, I really like... The fact that Christopher Eccleston is the is the mobster in this movie that's really funny to me. Uh, I like Angelina Jolie in this movie, and I like all the car yep. races. I think the car races are really really well done in this film. So I'm a big sucker for those things. The the thing I take away from this film is 
the Chris, Christopher Eccleston, there's the villain has got a kind of like wood fetish. And in the end, the way he kind of gets around, he's threatening to destroy, he's always car, he's, he's always, um, he's always doing some carpentry work in the garage when they're stealing all the cars, aren't they? And bringing them back in. And I think there's a point at the end fight where Nicholas Cage threatens to destroy this chair. And he's like, no, 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 no. And I just remember thinking that's an odd reaction for a villain. And um, yeah, Christopher Eccleston, obviously a former Doctor Who, like kind of very much like one of the most foremost British actors. You don't see too much of him these days. There's more sort of TV yeah. work. But D- Didn't he get like blacklisted by the BBC after he refused to do a series two for Doctor Who after it relaunched? I think he's appeared on kind of very kitchen sink drama stuff on like on BBC, but nothing as a kind of like big star role. They were very angry about it. In fairness, and I don't think it's often said, I don't think he was a particularly good Doctor Who. No. Because I think they they ended up replacing him, I think it was David Tennant. Tennant, who is much, much better in the role. It was much, much better, yeah. And each of the Doctors kind of fulfil their own little niche, don't they? And there's some of them who appeal... Like, Matt Smith was always one that my sons really enjoyed watching. They found him kind of silly. And I think there was a lot of stuff that was kind of romantic involving David Tennant that they were just like, they didn't care about that stuff because they were little kids. Um, For me, it's, it's, yeah, it's the, David Tennant. I, I, I like the first two years of, of Matt Smith, but then it just got bogged down by, like, this horrible writing from Moffat and, like, this overacting yeah. from Smith. But then I was well on board for Capaldi. I thought he was so great. It's so refreshing to see, like, what I imagine the Doctor to be, because I, I, I started watching Doctor Who with Tom Baker. Mm. So again, I'm dating myself here. <laughs> but it, 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 to me, I, I like that kind of older gentleman. Matt Smith was a little too young. <laughs> it was a nice contrast, but it was a little too young. I, I haven't watched the current series. I've watched like three episodes of the current series with uh, Jodie Whittaker, is it? That's right. Yeah. Uh, it, and she's okay, Like, but I, I've just kind of been falling back behind because of wrestling and watching... Game of Thrones and, and other things. So I, I'm going to sit down and just do a binge of Doctor Who before the end of the season. I think the likelihood is is going to be back on in the summer and I can see myself watching it um, because my youngest absolutely adores Doctor Who. So we would go to the library and we'd get out like old, um, uh, old ones. In, uh, I'm trying to think from pre-Tom Baker. There was, I want to say, is it Charles Lawton? Patrick Law, Patrick Mc- oh, it's, Patrick McNee. It's it's uh, a it's uh, William Hartnell. He's the first one. It, William Hartnell. Uh, yes. It is Patrick something. Uh, I don't have any browser. I say Patrick McNee. No, no, yeah. Patrick McNee's uh, from the Avengers, mate. Oh God, he is. Yes. It's sorry. Okay, it's Patrick something. Then it's uh, John Putri, and then it's Tom Baker, yep. and then it goes to Peter Peter Davidson, uh, Colin Baker, Sylvester McCoy. The the very short. The, the one episode, the one pilot from from Paul McGann. Who, Paul McGann. That's a shame because oh. he would have been an excellent doctor, you know. They they got the tone right. When it got cancelled, It like under Sylvester McCoy, it had gotten quite dark and it had kind of fallen out of fashion. And I think that's when the film came out. And at that point in time, it was like the film hadn't quite gone on from there. Like, it was almost like the film hadn't been kind of accepted. If it had come out in the mid-2000s, I think it would have fulfilled the niche because it always felt like when they rebooted it with um, Russell T. Davis doing it, there was like a kind of a really big push to kind of love Doctor Who again because it had been off the TV, I want to say, since the the late 80s because I can remember some of the Sylvester McCoy ones watching those and they were very dark and they were on about 8 o'clock in the evening. The circus one in particular, I think it's called The Greatest Show on Earth, 
is always something that I found really scary. Well, I think also, like, at that point, the, the production levels just went to the shits because it looked absolutely terrible. Yeah. Like, the Tom Baker stuff is just incredible for, like, the amount of, like, the costumes, the stories. I like how, it, like, every, like, almost every serial in the Tom Baker thing is, is an homage to the Universal Monsters. Like, you have Frankenstein, you have the Mummy, you have uh, Dracula, mm. you know, like, these are all things that, that you see, like, they're, these are homages to, like, film genres of, of the past, and, like, you have, like, I think there's the one, like, that's kind of, like, based off of, like, Sax Romer's Fu Manchu character, uh, which is very, has a very, like, Hammer horror films feeling to it, so I, I really mm. love that period, like, that's one of the things I like about that period of Doctor Who, not just for Tom Baker, but for this idea of like I've, I'm forgetting the name of the the producer is it Phil Hinchcliffe? I'm gonna need to check that. I think Phil Hinchcliffe that and the the head writer I, whose name escapes him right now. That team was like just responsible for so many great serials for Doctor Who. It, it, if you ever get a chance to come over to the to the, the UK, they still might have it. There's like a there's like a Doctor Who shop in East London. It's not far from where the Olympic Stadium is. And they've got some of the old sort of relics from their sex. There have been big Doctor Who exhibitions that move their way around, where they've got a lot of classic stuff from the from the series. Because I took my kids to the one in Cardiff, as well as the one in London, as well. Um, oh, great times! I've got, I'm going to find all these collectibles my L, uh, my youngest still has from um, when he was really into collecting Doctor Who, and it cost me a small fortune. Uh, I got a I got a replica of the third of John Putri. Uh, um, Sonic Screwdriver. That when it came out, I was like, "Oh, oh yes, gotta get that." That's that's a classic one right there. But uh, let's let's move on to the let's wrap up the show with some Japanese wrestling trivia and some American wrestling trivia, and maybe okay. maybe some UK wrestling trivia. Uh, in August okay. of two thousand and two, we know who the champion is, the heavyweight champion uh, for New Japan is. That's Kensuke Sasaki. Who is the IWGP Junior Heavyweight Champion at this point? It's someone we mentioned, JP. Um, Otani. It's not Otani. Oh, okay. Uh, it would be it would be Liger. It's not, it's not Liger. It's not Liger. Oh right. Oh, is it uh, 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 Takawa? Takawa, yes. Yeah, Tatsuya Takawa. Takawa, yes. Yeah, sorry. Uh, oh, that's a cheating. I've just gone for all of the ones oh, on there. No, sorry. Not at all. Who are the IWGP Junior Tag Team Champions? Oh. Um. So one is a one is a new Japan New Japan trueborn. He he came up in the dojo system. His partner mm-hmm. came through battle arts. Kendo Kashin? Not Kendo Kashin. Oh, Same initials as Kendo Kashin. Oh, uh, Koji Kanemoto. Yes. And who would his tag team partner be? Oh God! Uh, now you're asking. Um... He's the current uh, GHC Junior Heavyweight Champion right now. I think he's still a champion. He's in no one. Oh, um... oh, okay. It's not. I'm trying to say it's not Agawa. No. No, he wouldn't. No, no, I can't think. Sorry. Uh, it's uh, Minoru Tanaka. Minoru Tanaka. I'm going to be really bothered with this. Sorry, no, no, it's okay. quarter past two in the morning. No, no, no. Thank you for staying up late. So <laughs> at this point, they're they're, collect- <laughs> they're collectively known as the Junior Stars, and it's an amazing right. tag team. Like JP, you, you can't understand. Like 
this this period, like the early days of the IWGP Junior Tag Team Title, were mm. amazing. You had like Koji Kamanamoto and Minoru Tanaka. You had Takaiwa and Otani as a regular team. You had like Silver King and uh, who just passed away and his brother Doctor yep. Wagner Junior. They were teaming together in the company as junior junior heavyweights. Tremendous stuff. Tremendous, tremendous. And Liger and I think El Samurai were teaming at this point together. Just some really great tag teams. And just the matches were stellar. I, I urge anyone, just do a search of junior tag team like wrestling of the of like the early two thousands for the IWGP junior mm-hmm. heavyweight tag team championships. That's a big bit of a mouthful. You will not be I'll disappointed. Have to get back. You will not be disappointed. I'll have to get back on back onto these. Yeah. Okay, let, right. let let's move out away from New Japan, let's go to FMW, still around at this point, and they changed their, their heavyweight title to be called the WEW title. Do you know what that stood for? Uh, WEW. I want to say something like World Extreme Wrestling. Um, that sounds about right, but that seems far too obvious. I'm assuming it'd have to be something completely wacky. It's World, um, it's world Entertainment Wrestling. That's, I think my my name was better um, than that. That seems world entertainment wrestling. Yeah, this is before WWE. This is two thousand, so it's still the WWE. Wow. But what was the, the story behind that is that like FMW went through this like like this change, this massive change in management and like and Booker. So like uh, like you know the the kind of the the, the hardcore regime with Onita was kind of gone at this point, and then uh, Kodo mm. Fuyuki, who was like in All Japan before he was in war with uh with tenru and then he came over to fmw with his protégés who were jado and ghetto so they joined fmw and they kind of went towards this let's, let's make fmw more like the wwe like or the wwf at the time but make it more like entertainment based entertainment based wrestling so they say we're gonna not call the fmw belts fmw belts we're gonna call them wew belts world entertainment wrestling belts and like uh they had this this angle where Hayabusa, the big star of the company, he unmasked and he started wearing cutoff jeans and he had like, you know, I think he had pinned on tattoos and he's called H. That's all his, that's just what his name was. It was H and he was feuding with his best friend, Mr. Ganosuke, who is known as Dark Hayabusa. It's, it's all very interesting kind of stuff. This is like probably the only interesting thing of FMW from my limited knowledge of the company at this time. But you know, his finisher was the rock bottom. Like, Hayabusa's finisher was the rock bottom. <laughs> I'm just like, all right, so World Entertainment Wrestling, he, he's called H. So he's not Hayabusa anymore. He's H, and he's using the rock bottom as a finisher. I can see kind of where this is going. But okay, the, the champion at this time was the booker, Koto Fuyuki. So just you get that information out there. Let, let's move on to... The other side of the pond, let's go to the WWF. Who is the Intercontinental Champion, August of 2000? Okay, so Intercontinental Champion, 2000. I normally want to say the default answer would be Chris Jericho uh, at that point in time. Um, not him. No, not him. Okay. Oh, God. It's really difficult to do this without cheating, I won't lie. Um... Who else would it have been in 2000? Uh, um, he had one of the more salacious gimmicks in the company at that time. Which is saying Val something. Val Venus? Yes, Val Venus. Val Venus. Fellow Canadian. He is a Canadian. He, he is Canadian, yeah. Like, uh, 
He was married to Edge's sister. Or Edge was married oh to his God. sister. Wait, I'm trying to... Which way was it? It was Adam Copeland was married to Val Venus's sister. Yes, then, Sean Morley. Then I think he cheated... Was she the one he cheated on with Lita? Like, legit. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. And then he married Beth Copeland, Beth Phoenix. Now, So, it's very... Yeah, very... It was really interesting because, like, you know, Edge and Christian obviously went to high school together and actually one of my friends in university who i'm still friends with now he went to the same high school as edge and christian at the time so he would say hey wh you know that edge and christian that tag team in wwf i go yeah yeah, yeah. Was, i went to high school with them i go really he's like yeah just yeah they're, they're yeah, adam and jay it's like it's weird seeing them on tv <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> oh yeah okay so anyways um let's move on wcw who is the United States champion at this point. Oh, God. WCW in the year 2000. United States champion. Um, I'm almost going to say Lance Storm. You are correct, sir. I don't, yes. He was doing... Now, I liked that gimmick with Major Guns. And it was like he was doing the... Um, did Is that when he turned Jim Duggan? They turned him heel. It's took it Having team up with Team... And Elix Skipper was in there. Elix Skipper was in there. Yeah, Major oh. Guns... Uh, who? Yes. One more. Hugh was Hugh Morris. No, Hugh Morris wasn't in that, was he? Um, I'm trying to think if there was a junior who was in there at the time. Like, Skipper would have been the junior who was in. Yeah, there. Uh, something to look up later on. But yeah, Lance, good old Lance Storm is the United States champion. And final, final trivia question. Let's move to the UK. Uh, okay. <laughs> what I would imagine are the, are the dark days of UK wrestling. Uh, who, oh yeah. Who are? The Frontier Wrestling Alliance Tag Team Champions. Oh, uh, FWA. Who would it have been? Year 2000. Again, I, I don't know if it would have been Jody and Johnny. No. Um, no, it wouldn't have been them. So I'm thinking, was it one of the stables around the time? So I saw Front... I'm going to see Frontiers of Honor, but that wasn't until 2002. I have um, I have never heard of these, these wrestlers, this tag team and these wrestlers, so... I... Not like Greg Burridge, um, not Alex Shane. Um, da, 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 da. I'm trying to think of the royal family gimmick they had, or whether or not it was the kind of wacky. Ah, uh, should I just tell you, Aviv Mayan? Okay, so it's called the, the tag team called the New Breed, comprised of Ash and Curve, which are really weird. Like, why would you call yourself Curve? I don't understand. That's a weird wrestling name. I have no idea who they are. And I've saw... Because it was on... T- it had been on TV at various points, FWA. There had been a bit of... There was... Um, they ended up having quite a big show in Coventry in the in the early 2000s as well. But um, I've never heard of them. Yeah. They don't ring any bells at all. Can I just say, like, trying to find, like, UK championships in this time period oh. on Wikipedia or Cage Match was... For trivia, is very, very difficult. Like, I'm trying to do this with like with Martin Bushby when he was on the show. I'm trying to find UK trivia for him for like wrestling, and he uh, <laughs> it's so difficult, so difficult. Like I, I'm sure if I do like within the last five years, no problem. I can find who is the you know progress champion, who is the Rev Pro champion, who is the OTT yeah. champion. All that is like now it's okay, but back in the 2000s, very dire, very dire. JP, it was really dark days. I mean, when you talk about the boom in British wrestling, I won't. I won't bore everyone with the details of it, but it's really something that's sort of post 2011, 2012. 
Um, and so there's a long, long time in the wilderness. And there are various companies that come up. They get in a few big American imports, ultimately draw somewhat of a decent crowd, but there's no TV. They can't get on Skype because of WWE and that's what WWF, and that's what people want to see. So at that point in time, it's it's like promotions came and went pretty quickly. And yeah, it was, they were really dark days. I think FWA kind of had a good couple of years because they had two shows with Ring of Honor um, in terms of Frontiers of Honor 1 and 2. Um, and they and they were very good shows. There's a lot of their stuff available up on YouTube if you get a chance to see it. They, they also were the first um, wrestling company that had run York Hall in quite a while, which is now something that quite often I find myself going to Rev Pro shows at York Hall. Yeah, I hear. I hear. Yeah, I definitely hear you and you and Benno and Joe talk about going to uh, your call a lot. Like, yeah. if I ever come to the UK, I'm gonna say this. Like, uh, definitely hit you up, meet up with Benno. Yes, meet up with my my fellow post wrestling compatriot Martin Bushby, of course. Uh, and yeah. I, I can I just say I so desperately want to meet Joe Lemon in person. Oh, he's he... <laughs> yes. Because the good thing about him is he, he's not on Twitter, so he kind of hides. He kind of hides himself. There's nothing actually much more fun than meeting, than than seeing Joe when he loses his temper. And this can even start from things like moose chants in matches. Um, they've always been a particular highlight. If you watch wrestling that is kind of terrible with him, it can be hilarious. I, Just watching his, his blood boil. I feel more than like uh, I think with you, I would have a lot of like similarities in what what. We yeah. like in wrestling and, and other things, obviously, based on this t- conversation we're having. But I really feel like if I went to a show with Joe Lemon, like I would, he and I would just react the same way to a lot of like the same things <laughs> at wrestling shows. Yes. Yeah. He's very much like he, if there's one, he, he just hates, he hates some of the more, it's difficult. There's a, there's some nonsense he's good with, but then there's some stuff that he's just like, nah, doesn't, doesn't like it at all. It's fun to watch progress with him as well. I'll say this. He, at the time of this recording, I, I am currently like getting people angry at me because I, I had the temerity to insult Orange Cassidy on my Twitter. Yes. Oh, that's a dangerous game with indie wrestling fans to do well, the, that. The thing is, is um, I didn't actually use his name. I just said, listen, because I'm talking about the Ryusuke Takaguchi, uh, Ta- Takuchi and Rocky Romero match from Korokin recently for the best of the super mm. juniors and they had a good match but it had comedic elements in it and i said this is the kind of comedic wrestling i like as opposed to some guy using his dick to magically flip people over or some guy with a stupid fucking gun shooting people and people selling this shit and then i said and it's better than like some guy putting his hands in his pockets i never said orange cassidy's name but it's like <laughs> as soon as i say guy putting his hand in his pockets how dare you you, you, he's a comedic genius, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I can't say enough because about Orange Cassidy because I get to five minutes in his match, or not even then, I get two minutes into his match and I just like, this is bullshit. I turn it off, I skip. I, I go watch something else because I don't want to see some guy with his hands in his pockets and the other person, it looks so stupid trying to sell this or trying to work around this. To me, that's not, I understand people like it. It's cool. If you like it, that's fine. It's not for me. And I'm not going to pretend that it's good because to me, because it's not good to me. So it's, do you know, uh, we did, we covered all of WrestleMania between me and Benno. We did like four podcasts in four days and we were completely sort of brain dead. And one of the recurrent things was 
seeing the hands in the spot, hands in the pocket spot on an endless loop, just thinking, I've seen this a good seven times now. And the first time, it was like right at the start of the weekend. So I was all very kind of buzzed up and thinking, yeah, I'm going to be watching loads of wrestling. Oh, this is Orange Cassidy's doing this. By the time it's like you've seen it eight eight times in a row, you just sat there stone-faced going, I don't think I can watch this again. I'm I'm so tired and I'm up in the middle of the night and my sleeping pattern's gone to hell in a handcart. So, yeah, that that spot being repeated again and again. It's not a good look. But definitely go check out no. Taguchi and Romero. That's a very, very good match. Um, so, yeah, and mm-hmm. also, like, I do think watching this match, Sasaki and Nakanishi... Is is a fun match. You don't have to devote a lot of time to it. It's only it's under twenty minutes. Uh, it's it's still a fun match. It's not the worst match I've seen from the G one so far. No, and I was going to say as a even though it was just under twenty minutes, it it doesn't feel it's not a long twenty minutes. No, it, sometimes you, it goes by pretty fast. Yeah, it, it is. It's quite an it's quite an easy watch, and I think you know there's a lot of it for me that's carried on the kind of aura and charisma that um, Sasaki has. Um, for me, I mean, I, was, I always enjoyed seeing him as particularly as a WCW fan. He was like, okay, he was someone who was over there on a regular basis. Not so much Nakanishi with the was it Kurosawa he came over. Yes, as, Nakanishi was Kurosawa. Which is, yeah, which is just disgraceful. Not Kenzo Suzuki levels of disgraceful, but it's disgraceful nonetheless. How dare they um, name this? Uh, this you know half-ass wrestler after the greatest Japanese film director of all time. I was gonna say, I've seen Ran. Like it's it's just like seriously, Kurosa- like it, in the list of gene- like you're thinking, okay, you want to go for a generic name here? It's like Kurosawa. It's just a, a slight on the man. Yeah, I watched them all throughout film school. I was I was kind of shocked. It's it's well, yeah. It, thankfully, it didn't last when he came back to Japan. But uh, yeah. but JP. Let- Thank you so much for joining me on uh, this episode of Cruel Summer. I really, really appreciate it. I think this is one of the most uh, engaging, like all my guests have been great, but this is probably one of the more engaging, intensive, like we're veering off into other topics, which I don't mind. I like to talk about other things besides <laughs> the G1, if, if it's entertaining to, to me. I think entertaining to other people as well. But for the listeners out there, where can they find more JP? Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at JPJP, and that's spelled JP, J-I-P, three E's. And um, you can also find the Grapple app if you search on Android or iTunes under Grapple. That's G-R-A-P-P-L. Um, also follow uh, the Grapple app on Twitter at Grapple app. Um, also, you can find uh, my co-host, uh, Benno, uh, ben, uh, at Benson Richard E., um, Joe isn't on there, but I'm, we tend to put up the, the hashtag RevJoe if there's ever a point of trying to get his attention. So um, please do that. And yeah, you can download Grapple Spotlight at all good places where uh, podcasts are bought and sold. So you can find us on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify. Um, yeah, we've, we're on Podbean. So yeah, we're out there. Please give us a follow and a listen. And you're also occasionally a guest on the British Wrestling Experiences uh, here at uh, Post Wrestling. That's right. Occasionally, I di- I dip my water. Uh, dip my water. That sounds a bit rude. Um, I dip into the post wrestling waters, um, and yeah, uh, occasionally uh, on BWE, which is it- it's fantastic. Without me, honestly, it really is. It's, it's better. Um, and I think that's. I think there's a new episode of that coming out on on Wednesday. Uh, well, on every other Wednesday that it's out on post wrestling. So, 
yeah, give a listen to that. I'll let people know when um, when I'm on it. But have a listen to it. anyone. Have a listen to all the brilliant content on post wrestling. Before we wrap up, can I just make one point? Is that I, I really feel that you and Jamesy on BWE are are very similar. Like, except you're he's Irish and you're yeah. you're, you're 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 British or English? I forget. I'm okay. So I'm fake Irish. I'm from Irish family and I have an Irish passport. And in fact, Jamesy's from the same part of Ireland that my dad was from. So just to keep it even, so like a very small part of Ireland called Waterford, uh, where, they, where they were famous for making the crystal. I don't know if, you, if you'd ever ever heard of that. Um, but yeah, he's he's from there. I can do an Irish accent. I'm very wary of doing it on podcasts in case I end up deeply offending people. So I'm kind of I kind of keep it for a for a live thing. But yeah. If you had, I'd be like, he would be genuinely, I'd be what they would call a plastic, unfortunately. <laughs> okay. Well, hopefully if I ever make it over to the UK, I will have a, a pint, watch some wrestling with both you and Jamesy, and you can do the, the, the Irish accent at that point. Definitely, definitely, definitely on for it. And a good pint of Guinness as well, WA. Um, I'm, I'm off the Guinness, mate. Like, that, that stuff kills, oh. that stuff is, just kills me. I, I'm, I'm more of a, this might be sacrilege if I go over there, but I'm, I'm more of a light beer person, so... I don't like my. You can get, you can get some good craft beers uh, these days around the UK uh, and Ireland. So you can, yeah, you can do it's. It's gotten a lot better than the horrible lager days. I can, uh, I can tell that you. Sounds, that sounds that sounds something. I'm a big fan of the craft beer. All right. Well, thank you again, JP. Thank you to all the listeners for listening to Cruel Summer episode ten covering 2000 and uh you can find jp at twitter at the places he he said i'm not going to go over them again and you can find me at wh park nine at uh at wh park nine i was gonna give you my email address i don't want to do that at (laughs) wh park nine the number nine at twitter and also every month you can listen to me and john pollock talk about japanese wrestling at uh, post perez and uh thank you everyone and i'll see you next episode bye